So back to it. Philippians, finding joy in the journey. If you are in Philippians chapter 4, go ahead and say amen. All right, chapter 4, verse 4. Maybe you've heard a song that is really a scripture song based on this verse. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, yeah, all right, okay. Rejoice in the Lord always, again I say rejoice. Paul is not ashamed to, to call people to an experience of joy. These, these group of, this group of believers, he dearly loves them. I mean, you can see that in verse 1. They are his joy and crown. They are dearly beloved. But what's interesting is that even for this group of believers who are so strong already in the Lord, he's actually calling them to rejoice over and over again. It's a command. It's an instruction, which tells me something. That joy in the Lord doesn't just happen. Joy in the Lord must be chosen. Do you follow that? I mean, otherwise, he wouldn't say it. Like, he, he wouldn't command it. A command or an instruction always implies that there's choice in the matter to obey it. Rejoicing doesn't just happen. Rejoicing in the Lord is chosen. And it's something that Paul needs to repeat again and again because I think, I don't know, maybe I'm the only one in this room, but life tends to poke holes at my joy. Has anybody else ever experienced that? No? I'm the only one? <laughs> life, just the way it is, it tends to drain our joy in the Lord. And in this chapter alone, there are three dynamics. I mean, we're going to look at them, but you kind of read between the lines, and there are certain dynamics that Paul is aware about. He's aware of dynamics in our lives that, that really just, like, rob us. They're like joy stealers, if you will. Those three dynamics, I mean, we'll just kind of list them. One, interpersonal relationships. Oh, have mercy. Have we ever experienced that? Where our interpersonal relationships can drain us of joy. Yet, at the same time, they can be the source of the greatest joy. Uh, Another dynamic he looks at later is internal anxieties. Anxious thoughts can drain our joy. And the other is um, external losses, or the feeling of lack, the feeling of emptiness, empty pockets, not having enough. Those kinds of things can leave us dry of joy. But what Paul is wanting to get to is the reality that when it comes to joy in the Lord, finding joy in the journey, it's not just that you stumble upon it, but there are choices to be made that result in rejoicing always. I like that. Rejoice always. In other words, joy doesn't have to be fleeting. Joy can be enduring. And so what we're going to look at here in Philippians chapter 4, three choices, three choices or three habits maybe, um, but I'll call it three choices for enduring joy. How do we choose enduring joy. And the first, it's found in verse 5. Philippians chapter 4, verse 5. I'm reading from the New King James Bible today, and it says this, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Very interesting. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. So if we're looking at choices that we can make to live a joyful life, to experience joy that is always, to experience joy that is enduring, the first choice is this, Choosing gentle lives. What? Choosing gentle lives. Um, Maybe some of you are the rough and tumble type. Maybe some of you are the type that uh, you don't want to be watching a football game next to because you're not so gentle towards the opposition. (laughs) Maybe you're the type that you really don't want to be driving on the road next to just in case you make a mistake because you're not so gentle. But I believe that choosing gentle lives is a choice that actually opens up joy. Uh, when you look at uh, what's going on here in Philippians, just a little bit earlier before this verse, actually, in the entire letter, 
Paul addresses some things about interpersonal relationships and dynamics. Like, remember a couple of weeks ago, we looked at chapter 2. He was talking about um, being like-minded, you know, esteeming others better than yourself. When he's, when he's teaching about the gospel, he's teaching about the implications of the gospel on these horizontal relationships. Uh, in, in Philippians chapter 3, he talks about um, the, the existence of evil workers, opponents of his, people who are causing destruction in people's spiritual lives. But here in chapter 4, he doesn't speak about these interpersonal tensions in general. He actually gets very specific. And it's there in verse 2. He gets so specific that he names some people in the church that have some beef. Look at it. I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. What? He just called out some people who are like, nah, nah, nah. he just called them out and said, hey, look, I'm talking to you, Euodia. I'm talking to you, Syntyche. And, and you'd kind of think, man, Paul's going kind of harsh here. Is he being gentle? But notice how he does it in verse 3. And I urge you also, true companion. I don't know, maybe he's talking to a specific person in the Philippian church. Actually, some people, maybe your footnote in the Bible has a name for this. Um, oh, man, my, my Bible doesn't have it. It's, it's, does anybody have that footnote there? Sisgatis or something like that? Anyways, okay. So Paul goes to the extent of saying, hey, I urge you, true companion, help these women. And notice how, what he's, he, how he describes these women. Help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. When Paul gets to this specific issue, he doesn't stop with criticism. or I'm sorry, he doesn't even just launch into criticism. What he does is he commends them. Did you notice that? He doesn't just say, hey, these ladies, they need some help. He says, these are ladies who have helped me. These are ladies who have contributed to the gospel work. These are ladies who, who really have great things going on for them. And as a church, let's surround them. Don't just let the elephant in the room stay in the room. Let's be a church that digs deep relationally and actually helps them come to a same mind. Question, when you see someone else in the wrong, how much of your reaction is characterized by gentleness? When you see someone offend you or someone important to you or someone around you, how much of your response could be characterized by gentleness? What's interesting is I really wanted to find out what the meaning of this word is here in verse 5 when it says, let your gentleness be known to all men. Does anybody else's Bible translation have a different word besides gentleness? What do you have there? You see gentleness there too? Okay. Um, Other translations that I've looked at say forbearance. Um, others say uh, humility. But the, the, the word here is actually a word for justice. It's actually a word that's built upon justice, echos. Uh, and it says the word is epi-echos, meaning above or upon echos. In other words, it's, um, the word is literally fairness that is beyond fair. Does that make sense? I was, I was trying to like, figure this out. It's, it's a justice that's beyond just justice. It's rightness beyond the mere standard or letter of rightness. According to a word dictionary that I was looking up, it said, it's truly fair by relaxing overly strict standards in order to keep the spirit of the law. 
As I was thinking about justice, a picture that came to mind is the picture of the earthly sanctuary. You know how in the most holy place there's the Ark of the Covenant, right? That's God's throne. It's, it's God's epicenter of justice, right? Because in the Ark of the Covenant, what do you find in the Ark of the Covenant? It's God's Ten Commandment law. His throne is based on his law. His government is based on his law. But what's interesting is that over and above that law is a lid. It's a cover. And that cover is called the mercy seat. When you think about what's above and beyond justice, you think about mercy that's over and above justice. Not to say that it ignores justice or rightness or fairness. You see, in our relationships, especially when we're resolving tensions like Yodia needs to or Syntyche needs to, Paul calls not just for justice, but for something that's beyond justice. Not just for a concern for right, but being right with the right heart. Remember, Paul used to be perfect, right? We looked at that last week, Philippians chapter 3. Paul used to be perfect, and when he was perfect, he was even a persecutor. Paul used to be blameless, really standing true to what was right, but he was totally wrong when he was trying to exert his rightness. In his zeal for justice and rightness, he had become conscience for other people. And friends, when we become conscience for other people, that becomes a violent offense, not a gentle help. And I believe that's a violent offense that Paul doesn't want Christ followers to become known for. Instead, he says in verse 5, let your gentleness, your beyond justice, your beyond fairness, be known and evident to all men. We ought to be known for our gentleness, not that we sweep wrongs under the rug. Instead, gentleness stands for what's right without wrongfully hurting people in the process. Oof. Follow this. this I, I, <laughs> I hope this is hitting home. Because this hit home to me as a parent this week. (laughs) I need to stand for what's right, but not in a way that I wrongfully hurt people along the way. That's why whenever Paul uses this, he uses this two other times in his epistles. He precedes it with another uh, adjective. It's peaceable. Peaceable. It's a peaceable way. It's a humble way. It's the kind of rightness that still has relational influence to lead others to right. We can be so right that we lose touch with people. Do you, I don't know if this makes sense, but um, I needed to hear this as a parent this week. And my question today is, what relationships do, do you need to hear this in? And what relationships could we manifest more beyond rightness in? And what's interesting is, according to verse 5, all of this gentleness is in light of one simple fact. The Lord, what does it say? The Lord is at hand. You know what he's saying? Jesus is coming soon, so be gentle. (laughs) Jesus is coming soon, so be gentle. And let me just, this is like straight talk for a lifer like myself, okay? (laughs) A lifer, when I say lifer, I mean someone who grew up in in the Adventist context, in the Adventist community. Um, I think this this is something that people like me, people like us need to hear. The nearness of Christ's return is not an excuse to be harsh with others. It's okay to say amen. Like if you, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, maybe it was just my experience where people who felt like they were the most right were actually doing the most wrong. Jesus is coming soon, so you better get your act together. Does that sound familiar? I tell you, that quickly becomes another form of coercion. 
quickly becomes another form of spiritual manipulation. And I think Paul recognizes that because he was that. And he says, let your gentleness, your beyond rightness, be evident to all the Lord is at hand. According to Paul, the nearness of Jesus' return should inspire us to gentleness, exercising forbearance. Not that we ignore faults, but that we dig so deep relationally to graciously journey with people who have those faults towards a life of transformation. Let your gentleness be known to all. When we choose gentleness, we'll experience enduring joy. I I have a hunch that when Paul didn't choose gentleness, he didn't experience joy. I have a hunch that when he was hunting people down, trying to be conscious for other people, he wasn't experiencing always joy, enduring joy. So choosing gentle lives makes way for enduring joy. What's the second choice? The second choice is this, guarded hearts. We choose gentle lives, but we also choose guarded hearts. What do we mean? When we continue to read, Paul is going to move beyond kind of the interpersonal dynamics, and he's going to get to some of the everyday stuff. He says, be anxious. This is verse 6. Be anxious for how many things? What? (laughs) Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will do what? Will guard your heart's and minds through Christ Jesus. Aside from the interpersonal tensions of life, every day comes with its own set of struggles, its own set of anxieties, its own set of worries. I mean, Jesus himself said it. Don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow has enough trouble of its own, right? This word anxious, when he says be anxious for nothing, it literally means be divided, be distracted, be almost pulled apart. Don't don't be pulled apart by things. In other words, uh, I don't know, when I was thinking about this, if, if anxious, biblically speaking, means to be divided, to be kind of broken up, um, it points to the, the cause of anxiety when our attention is every which way. Have you ever noticed how your anxiety bar goes up, right? But it also points to the effect of that divided attention, that you end up falling to pieces, so to speak. That's what anxiety is all about, whether it's the everyday whirlwind of to-dos or the not-so-everyday mishaps, the not-so-everyday mistakes, troubles, tragedies, losses, griefs, sorrows. We're prone to living distracted lives. We're prone to living divided, going-to-pieces lives. But when we know Jesus, we don't have to be victims of that. We have another choice. We have a choice of a guarded heart, not a divided heart. How does that choice come about? We turn every anxiety into a prayer. Okay, that sounds a little too simple. How do we do that? (laughs) How do you turn every anxious thought into a prayerful one? Well, he gives it to us in verse 6. But in everything, by prayer, the word prayer simply means heart turn. It's uh, directing your wishes, directing your will and desire to God. But then he says by prayer and what else? What's the other word there? Supplication. That's where your desire, uh, your director... Okay. That's where you direct your desire, but now you articulate your desire. It becomes a specific petition out of a specific need. Okay? By prayer and supplication. But there's a third thing. With what else? With thanksgiving. 
You turn this anxious thought, you direct it to God, turn it into a specific need, but don't just make it a demand or a desperate panic like, Lord, do this now. Do it with thanksgiving. You know what thanksgiving is? Okay, yes, it's saying thank you. (laughs) But the word itself means to recognize grace. To recognize what you've already been given. Oftentimes we pray, Lord, I need this because you haven't given me that. A lot of our prayers is on the assumption that God hasn't given. But what if our prayers turned into an awareness of what God has given? Wow. Thanksgiving. In every care that divides our attention, pulls us to pieces, we have an invitation to turn our hearts to God, direct a specific petition to the one who knows all of our needs, even before we ask. And when we direct those petitions, it's not out of a desperate anxiety, but it's out of a grateful awareness of God's grace, both, both past and future. In other words, it's a faith-filled prayer. It's saying thanks even before we've seen an answer. Have you ever done that before? Thank you, Lord, for giving me this house even before I've signed the documents. Right? Uh, the other day, not, I mean, sorry, just a few months ago, um, I started attending uh, these pastor prayer meetings here in Castle Rock. Um, Every pastor in Castle Rock is invited to come to a particular location every Thursday morning at 8.30 to pray. It's really awesome. And I found out about it several months ago. In March, as we were just kind of hanging, over, hanging out over some light uh, refreshments, one of the guys there, he's, he's actually not a pastor. He runs a Christian clinic here, a uh, Christian counseling clinic here in Castle Rock. And he's sharing some health challenges that he was facing. Uh, liver challenges. Um, it was producing too much bilirubin, so he was uh, just really suffering under the, the symptoms of that, and he was asking for prayer. So we gathered around him. We prayed. All the pastors prayed with him. His name is Steve. Really good guy. And I just felt led to pray Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Lord, we don't want to be anxious about this, and so we're thanking you, even before we've seen any results, that you're going to give Steve a testimony to share of how you've blessed him because of this. What's really awesome, and I'm not trying to take credit for my prayers or whatever, but what's really awesome is that two weeks later, he sends out this email. Hey, so I went to the doctor, and they're not concerned about my liver anymore. But they are concerned about my lungs. They found something else. They found lesions, polyps in his lungs. And so he's like, guys, I know that, that my liver not being, you know, I mean, being kind of leveled out and stuff, that that's, that's totally an answer to prayer. So please pray that these polyps, whatever they are, would shrink. So we prayed for that too. (laughs) You know what happened? By the end of the month, they're about to uh, do a biopsy to try to figure out if it's cancerous or whatever. And the doctor does another scan to make sure he knows exactly where to uh, insert the needle and things like that for the biopsy. But as they're doing the scan in preparation for the biopsy, the doctor says, your polyps are melting away. <laughs> uh, you, we don't need to do the biopsy. It, it was incredible. Like all these kinds of things. And we're just like watching all of this. And um, Steve is sending out these emails. And if you've ever met Steve, Steve is a very even keel kind of guy. And I, I really believe that God was giving him answers to specific prayer. Maybe you've seen answers to specific prayer. But what's incredible is that even if you don't, see answers to your specific petitions, that that you're praying with thanksgiving, there is a result. 
there is a result that you can count on every single time, even if you don't necessarily see your liver healed. Even if you don't necessarily see money show up in the bank, there is a result. And Paul looks at it. He says it very specifically in verse 7. He says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. This is the result that we can count on every single time when we pray, like direct our hearts, form a specific petition, supplicate, and then we pray with thanksgiving. God will give us peace that guards our hearts. What is this peace? The peace, actually the word, it comes from a word that means join or tie together.